Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is magic and psi. My guest is my good friend Russell Targ, the pioneer parapsychologist. He is author of many books, including The Reality of ESP, A Physicist's Proof of Psychic Abilities. Limitless Mind, a guide to remote viewing and transformation of consciousness. Miracles of Mind and the Heart of the Mind, both co-authored with Jane Catra. The End of Suffering, co-authored with J.J. Hertak. Mind Reach, co-authored with Hal Putoff and introduced by Margaret Mead. The Mind Race, co-authored with Keith Harari. An autobiography titled, Do You See What I See? And most recently, Russell produced the video documentary, Third Eye Spies. Russell is based in Northern California. And now, I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Russell. What a pleasure to be with you once again. Well, thank you, Jeffrey. I'm very happy to have a chance to chat with you. We've known each other a very long time for many decades, and you have been engaged in parapsychology work for, for many decades. But it's interesting to think that even before that, you were, as a teenager, an amateur magician. Yes, I've been doing magic for 80 years now, if you can imagine. I grew up in Chicago. My father had a bookshop next to a tricks and jokes store. And as an eight-year-old, my father would bring me magic tricks in which I would hide a quarter from an adult. I would palm it away by sleight of hand, and then it would reappear inside of a nested box. So that, that was, that's fake magic. I'm, I'm fooling somebody with my superior knowledge and my ability to cloud their mind. And I did that for about a dozen years. This kind of fake magic, very entertaining. My father had an interest in magic of, of the real kind. So his shop was full of mag magic books and books on theosophy and other things like that, and rare books. And he eventually moved our family to New York, where he became vice president of G.P. Putnam's and published The Godfather. So he, he was on a very good trajectory from his little bookshop in Chicago, and that moved us all to New York. So in New York, he was doing publishing and I had free run of the city, and I could run to Hubert's Flea Circus, which is an amusement building on 42nd Street. So for a 14-year-old, I could go to Hubert's and see people doing sleight-of-hand magic right in front of me. My vision's not very good, as you recall. So if I could stand in front of a guy 
at a card table all day long doing magic, I got a very firsthand try experience. So I could then go upstairs in the building and talk to professional magicians and buy tricks across the counter. So by that time I was 14, I was becoming a experienced, let's say amateur magician doing stuff on the stage, uh, pretty good quality, linking rings, traditional magic tricks. And I was doing that on the stage. And um, during that period, 1948, two different things occurred to me in my magical career. In my biology class in Newtown High School, Robert Rosenthal, who was a big senior while I was only a junior, Rosenthal came into our class, biology class, and said, I want to show your class what work is going on at Duke University. And he showed me my first experience with these kind of ESP cards. And these are the cards that I later bought from the American Society of Psychical Research. So I was doing beginning ESP research in 1948. And Rosenthal sent me on my way. It turned out that Rosenthal was a key person in the Pygmalion effect. What he discovered is that if you are kind to your subjects or your students, they will do better. So in the Pygmalion effect, which is very important for this story, teachers were told that some of their students were late bloomers and Rosenthal invented the idea of late bloomer. So if you tell a group of teachers a quarter of your students have been measured with high IQs, but they won't show up uh, as high IQs until later on, but they're very gifted students, uh, just watch them. Even though that's untrue, all the students were equal, the students that the teachers thought were gifted would grow into significantly higher IQ students at a later time. And this was a uh, very important questioning the whole idea of testing students, because what it showed is the performance of a student or cooperator, performance of a cooperator is greatly dependent on how you treat your cooperator. And this is like uh, Carl Rogers, who had not invented non-directive therapy. Rogers said that we have to be kind to our patients, teach them as warm-hearted, and that's what I tried to do in my work at SRI. I was always very open-hearted, very positive affect. We expect everything we do to be successful. This is not a test. This is a social agreement. I don't know where the people are hiding, but if you quiet your mind, we together can find out where the airplane has crashed, where the building is burning, where the Russians are testing a bomb, where the aircraft carrier is moving. We can do all those crazy, amazing stuff. I don't know the answer, but I can help you because I know what 
psychic functioning sounds like. So I'm the I'm the experimenter here. I'm the non-directive teacher, and I'm just being kind to my visitor with the assumption that he's going to describe the right answer. And I did that for a decade at SRI and had anomalously good success. And I, and I will show you some of the things that I did, some of which are quite humorous. And we I did that for a decade. And by and by, people began to replicate it. And there was a small group of American psych, parapsychologists who began to have very good results with uh, non-directive experiments. Chuck Onerden was doing the Gonsfeld and the other group, other people were doing that. And in 1990, I called a conference called Increasing Psychic Reliability. This is with Russell Targ, William Broad, Rex Stansford, Marilyn Schlitz, and Chuck Onerton. And we all decided together that what we were concerned about is that 90% of the highly significant free response experiments were being done by 10% of the people. And most of those people were at that meeting. And we wanted to know, why is it that Rex Stanford, Marilyn Schlitz, Russ Targ, so forth, are getting four or five standard deviation, one in a million experiments, and other people are not seeing that. And we decided that the results you get in a free response trial are strongly dependent on how you interact with your subject. And I, of course, have no training in that. Uh, I knew Carl Rogers was, of course, but uh, I had no training in how to do psychology experiments because I was a physicist. I entered ESP research with 15 years experiments, experience in laser physics, never done a formal experiment in my life. But what I had uh, done is a lot of magic tricks. And in thinking about this year, what I had been doing, what did my magic tricks in Chicago as a punky amateur magician, what did that have to do with my decade at SRI? And I decided that doing magic is basically selling a situation in the same way as you sell a situation in remote viewing. I have a favorite card trick, which I'll briefly tell you. It, the illusion the illusion is, as I say over the counter, the, the, the effect is I shuffle, shuffle a deck of cards, hand you the deck, you choose a card, and then I reveal my knowledge that you knew I knew the card all along. Now, the, tri the trick is I did know the card all along, but the trick is, I wasn't actually shuffling the cards. You were not actually cutting the cards. You have the strong experience. And I, I've done this for government scientists. Part of my credit for being able to do ESP research and get money from the government is that I was trained in magic. What does that mean? That means that I am less likely to be fooled by a visiting magician. For example, Here's a deck of cards, regular cards, shuffle them up, 
choose one. Your card's the eight of clubs. That's the one my partner had written down an hour before in his notebook. That's impossible. How could he possibly have known the card? And the answer is, my attention on you was to make you misapprehend what you clearly think you saw. That's that's what amateur. That's what that's what fake magic is. Mister misdirection is very powerful. This little trick I described is called the magician's force, in which I am exposed to your saying, that's not the card I chose. You can't make me do that. But in 80 years of doing that trick from a kid, I've never been caught. Nobody has ever caught me out saying, that's bullshit. That's not the card I chose. Because the trick, the mechanics of this simple trick and the magic words you say are so powerful that the person is totally misdirected and unable to cognize what actually happens. And of course, the, the fact that that goes on is very is very frightening because you don't like to believe that in the face-to-face conversation, I can tell you it's blue and you say it's green, even though it's not green. Anyway, so that's that's what I did for uh, that that was my day. I believe the reason I'm chatting with you now is my I believe that my two decades of doing magic was good preparation for doing real magic at SRI, where I would sit in the room and I would tell the person, I have no idea where your boss has gone to hide. He could be anywhere in the Bay Area, but you and I will be able to describe it. If you just close your eyes, tell me about the surprising images that appear in your awareness and write those down. We will find, we will discover that the images that came into your awareness strongly correspond to where my partner, Hal, and your boss, Joe, have gone to hide, even though I have no idea where that could be. So it's as though I had created new magic words. I would never say, we're going to try and find out where your boss has gone. Where where, where do you think he's gone? Because even uh, 1,200 years ago, the fellow on my wall, which I think is still visible, as Padmasambhava, wrote a book called Self-Liberation Through Seeing with Naked Awareness. Naked awareness is quieting your mind so you can experience uh, what Dzogchen Buddhists call timeless awareness. You can move your consciousness freely into space, into time. Your consciousness is independent of time so you're free of cause and effect. And important, he tells us 1,200 years ago, it's important not to name or not to grasp what you want to see in the future. Allow it to come to you. Naming and grasping is the enemy of psychic functioning. And that was known 1,200 years ago, all written down, ready for us to study. My spiritual development was paid for by the CIA. I sat in the dark for a decade 
helping people quiet their mind and describe where people were hiding. And my preparation, as I said, was um, Dzogchen Buddhism and annoying amateur magic, which is, of course, not real magic. Now, I don't think that remote viewing was ma is magical I, because I think that we now have some of the tools to understand how it's possible for a person to quiet his mind and describe what's going on in a dis distant place. That is not non-local functioning was first talked about by Einstein in the, in the 30s and Bell, Bell's theorem came in 1965 and then Friedman and Clauser at Berkeley demonstrated non-locality, non that things can be separated and yet interact with each other across the distance. And my colleague, Hal Putoff, and I visited Friedman and Clauser in Berkeley just as they had done this very important physics-changing experiment showing that things can be physically separated yet have a non-local connection. So non-locality has replaced magic. We live in a universe, this is my, my way of putting it, which would not be what all physicists would do. My, my, my view is that your consciousness transcends space and time. You can quiet your mind and see things as small as a proton and a hydrogen nucleus, as the theosophical people did in the 1890s. They're able to describe the size of a proton, and Ingo Swan can expand, expand his awareness to describe what's going on on the surface of Jupiter 500 million miles away. So distance doesn't matter down to um, 10 of the minus 10th microns and out to Jupiter. So our consciousness is free to move through space and time. And that's what our experiments show. One of the very first experimental trials we did in our lab was with a man who turned out, turned out to be a great psychic, psychic policeman, Pat Price. He was one of the first remote viewers in our lab. And in fact, he was the first person that I ever sat with as a remote viewer. So this is our remote viewing series number one. Hal Putoff, my colleague, and Kit Green, who is a CIA contract monitor, are traveling together to some random place in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I have no idea what those places might be. I don't know what the target pool is, and I, of course, don't know where they went. And I'm sitting with Pat Price, who I just met and introduced to me from his scrapbook of successful remote viewings from a lifetime as a policeman. And we're sitting in our little electrically shielded room. And I look at my watch and say, well, it's nine o'clock now, Pat. Hal and Kit are probably at their target site. Can you tell me what you see? What comes to view? 
He says, I don't know what you're talking about. I never did anything like this. This doesn't make any sense. So here, here I am. This is the very beginning of our program, hailing the contract monitor out of the target site. I'm sitting with the guy who is supposed to be one of those psychic people in the world. And he says, Russ, I don't see anything. Now is my move. So what I did, I closed my eyes and I said, well, we know that Hal and Kid have gotten into Hal's green uh, Honda Accord. So they're in this little Honda Accord. They're pulling out of the parking lot. We know that that's what they're doing. Can you follow the car? And Pat said, oh, yeah, I did that. I've done that all the time. I know how to do that. So he said, I'm following the car south on Middlefield Boulevard. They're going into a park. And I see a rectangular pool on the left and a round pool on the right. Round pool is about 100 feet. The rectangular pool is about 60 by 80. And the two tall water towers there, I know what this is. This is some kind of water purification plant. And at, with that, he's done. Helen kit come back to my office pat has a amazingly accurate drawing that he made with me of the rectangular pool and the round pool drawn correct to within 10 percent accuracy the water towers are of course not there because the swimming pool complex it wasn't until 10 years later than the City of Palo Alto is celebrating its 100th anniversary that we learned that Rinconada Park swimming pool complex used to be a water purification plant. And in the pictures that they sent to me, they contains a picture of the two water towers just as Price drew. So put it all together, Price was able to draw a geographically accurate picture of where Kit and Hal were located now and what used to be there 75 years ago, which was the pair of water towers, which undoubtedly would have been the tallest thing in the city of Palo Alto. So when people say, well, what part did the interviewer play? Of course, I don't know the answer, but I'm sitting with Pat and Pat says, I don't see a damn thing. I then have to suddenly find out what an interviewer does or in a certain sense, it would be the end of the program. This was our demonstration for the CIA of what we do. And the answer has to be, we better damn well be doing something. So that, that, so that was my very first experience with conducting a remote viewing. Russell, I'd like to go back to a remark you made when we first started about Robert Rosenthal and the Pygmalion effect. Most people assume that it's really uh, has nothing to do with non-locality or with the paranormal, that if, if the teacher is nicer to these students because the teacher has high expectations, the students will then perform better. But I gather from our conversation that you're, you seem to be suggesting there's a, a non-local or a paranormal component to the Pygmalion effect. No, Jeffrey, the, I, I think that there, 
two phenomena going on now. If somebody comes into my lab and we're going to do an experiment, if they think this is a test that makes it infinitely harder than if they feel that they and I are going on a little trip. So uh, the Pygmalion effect is, uh, is, is not a metaphysical phenomena. It's a um, manifestation of being kind to your students. If, if you're kind to your students, you can help the student manifest an ability that he has that he don't, didn't know he had. So people come into my lab, and I'm going to describe some of them who said, I don't believe in this stuff. This is all bullshit. Uh, I'm here to find out how you're doing this. And I said, this is not a test. We'll just do this together. Don't worry about it. And my, my annoying words are, if you just do what I tell you to do, this will all come out fine. You don't have to worry about a thing. Now, that, that's, not para, that's not paranormal. What I'm doing this paranormal is helping the person move his awareness into the distance or into the future. That, that's, that's a paranormal, non-local phenomena. But the key to doing that is to make the person feel comfortable and to make them feel that what I'm asking them to do is not crazy, which is what they think it is. So Rosenthal's idea that the way you treat your subject has a big effect on how they behave, and that can be an IQ test, which is not a metaphysical phenomena, or it can be finding a downed airplane in Russia, which is a metaphysical phenomena, which is a non-local phenomena. Do, do I answer? Did I answer your question? Well, y yes and no, because I have known you for a long time, and I think it may be hard to acknowledge, but I'm under the impression that there's something about your very presence that exudes, I mean, you could call it magic. Well, for example, when you were doing magic tricks as a, as a child, as, as I recall from one of our conversations, you won a couple of prizes that uh, were kind of unexpected. And I, I wonder if it has anything to do with real magic. That, you know, many magicians are interested in the, the metaphysical side of magic. In the same year, 19... 48 that Rosenthal introduced me to ESP cards was my last time on stage doing magic. I was doing my, I was 14 years old doing what became my regular shtick, which was a half a dozen uh, pretty high quality sl semi sleight of hand magic tricks. Uh, and people were very mystified because these are sort of tried and true big effects. And I did this for a couple hundred people at a art opening on Madison Avenue, where John Groth had just come back from the war, working with Ernie Pyle as war correspondents. Groth was a painter, and at the and he was a friend of my father's. My father had published his paintings, a book of uh, collected paintings of John Groth, and at this art opening, I was the entertainment. And after I had done my magic tricks, uh, the author's wife, Anne, 
said, well, we put all of the entry tickets into a um, jar here and I'd like you to stir them up and we will give this beautiful painting of a soldier and a Dutch, Dutch girl in the field. We'll give the beautiful painting to whoever ticket you pull out and a couple of hundred like movie movie theater coupons or tickets and i reached in i stirred them up and stirred them up and become i can't read very well so i gave the ticket to ann and she said here's a ticket number five two eight seven six one does anybody have that and everything got quiet nobody had that and it occurred to me, well, I had one in my pocket. I pulled out mine and handed it to Anne. And she said, by golly, the young magician had the winning ticket. So I had I had stirred up this pot of 100 tickets and pulled out mine. And they agreed that the magician could have this painting, which I have on my wall now. But <clears throat> but Anne said, that's really not fair. We, we should, uh, somebody should be able to win this. Uh, other than the magician. So stir them up again, Russ, and pull out another ticket. I stirred them up again, gave Anne another ticket. She read out a new number, silence in the room. Finally, my father stood up from the back of the room. He said, well, by golly, Russ did it again. I, he pulled out my ticket. So the second picture, which is of a beautiful color painting of a bullfight, I also have on my wall. So he, I managed to pull out from a group of 200, uh, I pulled out my ticket and my father's ticket as odds of like um, one in 40,000. Very unlikely event. Very unlikely event. Now, <clears throat> now we like to believe we live in a causal world. Uh, I not only couldn't arrange the tickets, I couldn't even read the tickets. So I'm totally innocent of any sleight of hands, but somehow I was able to uh, facilitate the outcome. So we did, I, pl I played a part, no doubt. I reached into the jar two times and pulled out our family's tickets two times odds of one in 40,000. And that was the that was my last time on stage because I had I, I figured that that was a pretty magical occurrence. I was already now reading the Journal of the Society for Psychical Research and I was moving out of stage magic and trickery into something that looked like real magic. What this experience suggests to me, Russ, is that in addition to the fact that you were very nice to your research subjects, there's something about you and, and your native psi ability that kind of rubs off on people who work with you in the enclosed chamber, the sealed room where you did your remote viewing experiments. In my little spider web. Yeah. I'm not shy about claiming that I may have some psychic ability, but there are dozens of other people doing remote viewing, army officers and their 
army boots out in Fort Meade, I trained six people how to do remote viewing, and they set up a whole army psychic corps at Fort Meade. That was the, that was the formal Stargate program. That had nothing. I was not a. I, I trained the first six people, but I had uh, I was at least two people removed from a lot of work that went on there. So uh, I think that I do well what I'm doing in the shielded room, but it's not unique to Russ Targ. That I I'm happy to talk to you. We we do, we have a puzzle, and I'm happy to share that with you. But but I'm not alone in uh, as a psychic. Shortly after the program got started, um, my we we published a paper in 1974, published in Nature magazine, are about our early experiments with Pat Price describing all sorts of distant things that were hidden around the Bay Area. And my editor was, was also the uh, editor of jo Jonathan Livingston, of Richard Bach, Jonathan Livingston's Siegel author. And she said, uh, Richard Bach is interested in your work. He's a very mystical pilot. He'd like to meet you. And besides, he just made $10 million from this book that I published for him. And Richard came to our lab, <clears throat> flew the airplane into Palo Alto, came to the lab and said, I'd like to see something psychic. And that's what people always say. They, they want me to demonstrate some psychic thing to them. And my answer always is, I can't, I'm not going to do that because you'll then think it's a trick. Uh, but I will show you how to do it. And then you can go away with the drawing that you made. So we'll send Hal, my partner, to hide someplace, and I have no idea where he's going, no idea at all. And you and I will find will find him. So Hal went someplace. Richard said, I see Hal's in a building, very tall building with uh, tall cutouts inside, very decorative building. And he's now walking to the end of the building, and there's like a counter. It looks like an airplane ticket counter. And he's standing at this long, shiny counter, three feet wide and eight feet long, says Richard. And on the wall behind the counter is the logo of the company. That's what I get. Okay, so Hal came back. And they were, where, where were you? It sounded like a very peculiar place. He said, well, I went to the big church on Hamilton Avenue, tall, pointy building. At the end of the church, there's this long altar. And behind the altar on the wall is, of course, the logo of the company, which is a big cross. So Richard thought that that was very amusing. He liked his, he took a picture his picture greatly resembled what he had seen. And I had no idea where he, where he had gone, but this is the kind of thing that a person will come into the lab. I don't know anything about remote viewing. What, what am I supposed to do? 
and I just sit with him and say, Hal has gone someplace. Tell me what you tell me what you see. So another person I did a very similar thing with was Jeffrey Mishlove. Oh, I know him. Can I, can I tell that story? Yes, indeed. This, this, is a, this is another demonstration of my non-psychic ESP. You came. You had just received your PhD, I think, in 1980. This was in 1976, Russell. I was still a graduate student. All right. But you were an aspiring ESP researcher. Yes. So you came to the lab and said, you, you, Russ, you've been publishing this psychic stuff in Nature magazine. Makes it seem like it's probably true. Uh, can you show me how it works? And I said, all right, Hal will go and hide someplace. I have no idea where he's gone. Don't know anything about it. But I'd like you to quiet your mind and tell me what images come to you. And you did not do that. You said, it looks to me like Macy's department store. <laughs> yeah. I don't know where he's gone whatsoever, but I know that that does not sound like remote viewing. Remote viewing sounds like I have a feeling, I see an image, and what you were doing, of course, was naming the target, and I know that naming the target is a particular enemy of Psy. So I said, I didn't say you're a bad person. I said, uh, that's not usually the way this thing works, Jeffrey. Why don't, let's start over, take a deep breath, and tell me what images come to your, what are you experiencing that, that cause you to say Macy Department Store? And you said, I see a whole succession of hangers, like one hanger after another, and you drew this very nice concatenation of clothes hangers, which turned out to be a very good drawing of the of the pedestrian overpass across Bayshore Freeway, which is where Hal had gone to hide. So it was not anything to do with my psychic prowess that I was able to help you, but rather I had an idea what psychic functioning sounds like. I, and I worked with Hella, for example, extensively, and I could just tell from her tone of voice uh, whether or not <clears throat> she was describing something psychic. You have had a remarkable track record taking people with no experience, like Hella, for example, and the very first time they endeavor to do remote viewing they get a direct hit, which is ultimately what I myself did uh, in in that session. Once you straightened me out uh, a little bit. On the other hand, your partner Hale Putoff worked very hard with Ingo Swan to develop a very elaborate training method, and there's been this sort of conflict in the field ever since then. It seems to me as to uh, what is the role of training. If people can get perfect hits the first time, do they really need training or do they just need to have a session with Russell Targ? I don't think the training was successful. People have copied the remote viewing, coordinate remote viewing 
different kinds of remote viewing protocols as training. And my opinion is, once you show them the moves, once you give them the experience, they then go off and do it. Like learning to ride a unicycle, that looks like it's quite impossible. But once you put a person with good balance, like my daughter, as a five-year-old, I guess, put her on the unicycle, balance her up, and off she rode. And she rode her unicycle in nursery school every day for a semester. She was the kind of person, as a three-year-old, I would take her to the um, children's park in Rinconada Park, where you could play in the sand or play on the seesaw, and she amused herself by walking on the top ridge of the wire fence around the park. So she just had naturally excellent balance and had no problem hopping on a motorcycle on a unicycle and riding away. Did not need any further lessons. Hella, similarly, we had finished our trials with Pat Price. We'd done nine trials of the form. You and I are sitting in the laboratory Hal is hiding someplace as though he's been kidnapped. What do you see? What comes to view? Pat described nine different places on those nine trials. Seven of those were judged first place, which would be odds of one in 100,000. Or to put it simply, if Hal had been kidnapped nine times by the terrorist, Price would have named the place seven out of the nine times. So Price would have name, named where he was hidden seven out of nine times. And the CIA thought that that was very important and renewed our program. They, they, they weren't interested in the one in 100,000. They were interested in the fact that Pat could say they've gone to a church, they've gone to the windmill, they've gone to the waterfall. And that was where he had been nine times in a row. And we, that we published that in Nature. With Hella, we had now worked with Ingo Swan, who's a na natural psychic. We worked with Pat Price, who's a natural psychic. Kit Green, who's head of life science division at CIA, said, I want to see somebody who's not a natural psychic. Can't you find an ordinary person? So I asked Hella Hamid, who would by no sense be called ordinary, the highly intelligent, cultivated German photographer, a good friend of our family, and she thought it would be very amusing to be paid by the CIA to be psychic, which is not something she ever had any thoughts about. So she said, sure, I'll come to Palo Alto and pretend to be a psychic. If you, you show me what to do, I'll do that. I'm very good at following instructions. So we, first trial, we sat in my little shielded room. She had crocheted little stockings for herself where you had each eyeball, each toe had an eyeball. So she had these eyeball socks to give all, all the importance we could to have for the CIA project. And um, I said, well, Hal has gone to hide somewhere. Nobody knows where it is. Can you tell me about the images that come to your awareness? And she said, well, 
I see something moving fast up high. And I know that a judge will never be able to match that. So I say, let's take a break and take a deep breath. And let's look again. We're looking for Hal. He's someplace in the Bay Area. Don't know where he is. What, what do you see? And she said, well, it's like a trough up in the air. It couldn't hold any water because it's full of holes, but there's this trough up in the air. And I said, well, that's very interesting. Let's take a break, and maybe you can draw that. And she said, okay. And she made this drawing of squares within squares within squares, which is now an iconic image of the pedestrian overpass very accurate drawing of the overpass, as you would see from where she is standing. And that was, of course, the number one match and her number one trial. And as you mentioned, this is Hella's very first effort at remote viewing. So once again, uh, I don't know the answer, but I know what the answer is going to sound like. Interesting that it was the very same highway overpass that was the target in my first trial. To the best of my knowledge, that's the only time in my experience, we, we, we have a target pool of 60 targets. And to the best of my knowledge, it's the only time uh, the same target came up twice. Now, for statistical reasons, we want to do this with replacement, as you understand, because if you get a church and then, for example, we got a church with Richard Bach, we don't want to diminish the number of churches. If, if, if whoever put it together tried to have a certain number of overpass, certain number of churches, you don't want to diminish that statistical occurrence by pulling them out. So the CIA, the Army became embarrassed about having to send soldiers to SRI whenever they wanted to find a downed airplane or something. So they said, can't you train up some of our people? And we said, sure we could. So we, they got together 30 Army officers who are willing to mortgage their careers by learning to be psychic. And of those 30 people in a big gymnasium, Hal and I chose six, and we chose them by, by as a result of our interview, what we thought they uh, were, were they stable enough to not go crazy and become a psychic person out of control, and do they have experiences that made me feel that they could do this? And the person that I chose was Joe McMonagall. Because Joe described to me, he was our warrant officer, described to me going to Vietnam, and as he got off the Green Army airplane, he saw in his mind's eye a yellow plane. And indeed, nine months later, he was evacuated as an injured person on a Air America yellow plane, just like he had described. <clears throat> so that sold me. That was his ticket to the Stanford Research Institute, because that sounded like excellent remote viewing. So I brought him up into my shielded room. We sat at a table, and he said, well, what am I supposed to do? What's this all about? And I said, well, your major and Hal 
have gone to hide someplace, and I don't know where it is, so I can't help you, but I can get you started. And as they, Hal and Scotty want, have gone someplace, I want you to quiet your mind and draw a little picture of the images that come to mind. And he drew maybe eight or nine little pictures around the edge of a page. And I began to be alarmed because I know that the payoff at the end of this is that a judge is going to look at that piece of paper and have to match it to some target. And if there are eight or nine pictures, it's going to be a problem. So I said, okay, that's a good one. Let's take another piece of paper. And of the things you've seen, um, which is the one that you can move into and get further information about? And he said, well, there's this one, one building with tall black and white piano keys up here to be in the front and a long collection of um, building along. Now, this is all 40 years ago, so my memory is not perfect. But I know that he talked about the piano keys in front and the long concrete building in the back and a fountain in front. That's what I get. And that's the, and I said, well, can you make a drawing of that? And he made a very nice drawing. In fact, he made an exceptionally nice drawing of the Stanford Art Museum, which we now always feature as what an army officer can do if you lead him into doing remote viewing. And that, of course, was a number one, number one match, your highly superior drawing. And again, you say, well, what's my part? And my, I say, my, my part is to help him separate the signal from the noise. I don't know the answer, but I know that the judge downstream is going to need help. So I can help him by guiding the viewer to separate all the chatter on that page from the thing that was the true answer. Now, one of my favorite stories to tell, which I actually never told anybody publicly, but our, our lab manager was concerned about what's actually going on. See, all what I'm describing is, in a certain sense, what's happening behind the curtain. Because all of this remote viewing is me in the dark with the viewer. And SRI has no idea, what am I doing in the dark with the viewer? So they brought in a very famous uh, Israeli physicist, Yakir Aranov, a uh, person I knew well from te his technical work with David Bohm, famous Bohm-Aranov effect, where I don't even have to tell you what it's about. Fa famous, so he's a famous Nobel candidate, didn't get a Nobel Prize, but if he lives long enough, he may get one. And I had never met him before, of course, but he was brought to our lab because the SRI wanted to know, am I working with soft-hearted psychics? Aronoff was not such a person. So he and I sat down, we could talk about physics, and I said, Hal and your friend have gone to hide someplace, I have no idea where they are. He said, it doesn't matter to me, I don't even believe in this stuff, doesn't make any sense, certainly not physics. 
what do you want me to do? And I said, well, uh, Hal and your buddy are probably at an interesting place now in the San Francisco Bay Area. Can you tell me what uh, comes to view when you close your eyes? He said, I don't know about I don't know about you. When I close my eyes, it's dark. And we did that for almost 20 minutes. And I said, well, they're just about done now. Can you tell me, do any images come to view? He said, no, I told you it's dark when I closed my eyes. I said, I understand that. Let's pretend that you see something. My best Rogerian technique. I said, uh, pretend you see something. Can you can you tell me what what comes to mind if you just make something up? He said, well, what comes to mind is my mother's farm in Israel where she raises ducks, and I see a duck crossing the road. And I said, that's wonderful. Could you draw that for me, please? And he made a very cute little drawing of a duck crossing the road, and your ESP will tell you that the place they had gone in Palo Alto was the duck pond by the Palo Alto airport. So the target on the piece of paper that they went with, driving instructions that go to the duck pond, and the arch psychic from Israel drew him a picture of a duck. Do you think that changed his attitude at that point? It changed the, no, I don't think it changed uh, Arano's attitude, but it changed the attitude of our lab manager because this is like a 100% match from a very trustworthy person of his choosing. So uh, they were quite convinced. And I had one other person like that that's worth talking about. We were now lined up to get a million dollars a year working with the Army. And we had a visit from Walter LaBerge, who was Undersecretary of Defense. So we had this secret program at SRI. Nobody knows that it's the Army. And LaBerge comes flying in in a helicopter. We have to clear our parking lot so this guy can come flying in his helicopter. And everybody wants to know what's Puloff and Targ doing that you get Undersecretary of Defense. What kind of program is this? So LaBerge. And his major come upstairs, and I get to meet them, and they get to meet Hal. And then they go hide someplace, the major and Hal. And again, the story you become accustomed to, the major, LeBaire says, I don't believe in this. Can't you have Ingo Swan or somebody do this? And the demonstration, I I didn't plan to be a psychic here. I planned to watch a demo. And I said, if I do a demo, I could do that. I could have Ingo Swan tell you where Hal and the major have gone. But then you'd go to back to Washington, and you and your major would try and figure out how the trick was done. How, how did I deceive you? How did I get you to believe this was the answer? But on the other hand, if you just close your eyes and draw a picture of where they are, then you'll have your own picture and your own experience to guide, and you'll have that back in Washington. And he did that. He drew that they had gone to a place called Allied Arts, north of 
north of SRI. And he said, I see a, a lot of bricks. It's a circular brick structure with a, fa a fountain in the middle. And that's exactly where they were. If you ever look up Allied Arts, uh, he drew a, a wonderful little sketch of the bricks in the fountain. And, he, and we got the contract. We basically, with these various people, we had to earn our way. If, if you claim you're doing something psychic, show me what you're doing. So even with skeptical people like Aronoff and Leberge, who don't believe in it, don't want to do it, I sort of soften it so they don't have to do anything that's weird. I don't say, uh, where are they hiding, which is a obviously impossible task. I just cue it up and explain to them, you can't do this wrong. All I want to know is what you're experiencing. I just want you to tell me about the surprising images that come into your awareness, and only you know that. So if you if you will share that with me, then we'll be able to find the the people that are hiding. And th those are the mag if you think of this as a magic trick, those are the magic words. Just tell, close your eyes and tell me about the surprising images that come into your awareness. And then they will do that exact thing and we'll be able to find them. Well, Russell, you've been one of the most successful parapsychology researchers in history. You've been doing this work now for half a century. I know you worked with groups of people all over the world, teaching them to do the, the, the very same thing. I wonder if you have any thoughts about where all of this interest in remote viewing, and now there are, I think, tens of thousands of people uh, practicing remote viewing, what, what is it leading to? Leads people to the idea that there's more to the nature of their body and soul than meat and potatoes, that they have the ability to quiet their mind and experience the universe, that the Buddhists teach us to expand their awareness outside of space and time and get rid of the suffering that comes from thinking that you don't have enough or that you're in danger and you can move to uh, a much more free spirit. It gives you freedom. It gives you free freedom to it gives you freedom to move your awareness from craving to a, a limitless I wrote a book called Limitless Mind that, that answers your question. I I can do do this for a a workshop with a hundred people, and they will describe my little object. And that experience is mind-changing. It's like I've given them a new, a new sense, a new eyeball. So learning to do remote viewing uh, doesn't give you a new belief system. It just gives you a new capability. And one other thing, if you're of a spiritual inclination, it gives you a something to do in a meditation. That in meditation, you can move into this timeless awareness that's available. 
Remote viewing is not a spiritual path, incidentally. It's a capability like vision or hearing, but it can lead you into spiritual paths because it allows you to quiet your mind and expand your awareness. So the reward for learning remote viewing is not that you can win the lottery, although you may be able to do that also, uh, it's to control your mind so that it basically gives you access to the off switch. I don't know if that answers your question. Actually, I'm thinking about how it began with funding from NASA, funding from the CIA, funding from the Army, and and yet it's pointing in the direction of something having to do with human potential and metaphysics and, I think, also spirituality. It certainly pertains to spirituality, but it doesn't, uh, doesn't have anything to do with deities, needless to say. It gives you contact with your spiritual nature. That is your spiritual nature. The, the, for, for what this physicist would say here is your non-spiritual nature says that who you are is meat and potatoes. If you think that's the answer, if you think that who you are is what you see in the mirror in the morning, you're in for a lot of suffering. Because what you see in the mirror in the morning, in general, does not get beautiful increasingly over time. It goes the other direction. So if you think that's who you are, there's a lot of suffering. But if you think that who you are is timeless awareness, the mental capability to expand your awareness and move out into time and space, that gives you a huge capability for meditation, for going to sleep, Jung had an experience like that, Carl Jung, that he describes in his Dreams, Memories, and Reflections. He has an out-of-body experience where he goes out past the moon and can then look back at the earth and the stars and the moon, and that changes his whole view of human capabilities. Russell, uh, before we end the interview and uh, looking back on your long career, as you say, you've been practicing magic for 80 years, and I know that your 88th birthday is coming up this year. Do you have any other thoughts you'd like to share with our viewers? Like, what, what have I been doing for the past 88 years? Well, I spent half of that time as a physicist, building lasers, flying lasers through thunderstorms and giant lasers for cutting up locomotive cylinders. And the other half I spent in the spiritual realm studying psychic abilities. So the, if I were to give anyone advice, I would certainly suggest that you become accustomed to remote viewing capabilities. So if you can control the chatter of your mind and open your mind to see into the distance, see into the future, when you're going to sleep, for example, you can't go to sleep, something you can do with your chattering mind is move off the planet into the distance, into the future, where there are no distractions. 
this famous guidebook of Padmasambhava, Self-Liberation Through Seeing with Naked Awareness. The, that whole book is a, is a guidebook on how to quiet your mind and see into naked awareness. So this is a very famous handbook written in the written in 800. Padmasambhava is a historical character. So the king of Tibet invited Padmasambhava to come to Tibet, teach Buddhism as a unifying religion. So without Padmasambhava, there would be no Tibetan Buddhism. Buddhism today is not a religion. There's no deity. So this is this is Russ Targ physicist speaking. When so I caught myself when when Padmasambhava went to Tibet, his writing is full of religious symbolism from India at that time. And that was what was taught until the twelve hundred when Longchen Rabjan, Longchampa, really purged Buddhism from the deities and taught us like a physics course. Reminds me of Jerry Jampolsky, who's a physician friend of mine, friend of Course in Miracles. He loved the Course in Miracles, but he was a Jewish teacher. He couldn't stand all the Jesus, so he just purged Course in Miracles from all the Jesus teaching. And he wrote a famous book. Love is Letting Go of Fear. So he wrote Love is Letting Go of Fear, hugely popular teaching of sort of sanitized Course in Miracles, much as Longchampa's books, Basic Space of Phenomena. Longchampa's famous book was called Basic Space of Phenomena, which sounds like a physics text, but is really a meditation text. It's about Buddhism uh, without deities which is the way it is today. Well, I gather then that the message you'd like to leave with people is that if they explore this area, they can maintain a, a scientific, rational approach and still open themselves up to what we could think of as non-local or metaphysical reality, that these things are uh, compatible. That's right. Longchen Rabjan in the 12th century has written sort of the, I'll annoy a lot of Buddhists, but he sort of gives you a math mathematical treatise on Buddhism, how to quiet your mind, what's there, what's available, what you can do. And he's the one who said, amazingly, you are free from the ordinary ideas of cause and effect because your awareness is outside of time, you're not limited by cause and effect. Very, very amazing thing for somebody to say in the 12th century. And his name is Longchen Rabjan, and his friends call him Longchampa. You know, earlier at the beginning of our interview, Russell, you mentioned you had been practicing Dzogchen meditation. And I guess Dzogchen is, is a style of Tibetan Buddhism. You'd also implied that you'd been doing that since before you began your work at SRI, or am I mistaken about that? I may have said that. I, I began uh, Dzogchen Buddhism about the same time. 
I had been a long time meta. I was a child theosophist. So I, I was hanging out at the New York Theosophical Society as a graduate student in 1956. So I was doing Kundalini meditation for a long time until I decided that was very dangerous. But I had pursued Kundalini for quite a while until I had a, a scary experience, not, so, not something to be done without a teacher. But uh, so I was an experienced meditator when I, by the time I got to SRI. Well, Russell, uh, this has been a delightful conversation. Is there any, uh, anything else on your agenda that you'd like to share? I think you've been very generous in giving me an opportunity to tell people what, what I've been doing. So we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of remote viewing at SRI. Indeed, I'll have an 88th birthday in April. And in June, we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of Bobby Fischer becoming the world chess champion. And Fischer was my brother-in-law, wife. My, he was the brother of my former wife, Joan Fisher. So you got to have a lot of things to celebrate. I look forward, uh, Russell, to more years with you. I know uh, you and I both have gone through different health issues. I think we both have pacemakers uh, at this point. So I, I know we're getting older, but it's always a great joy for me to have time with you like this and to be able to share it with the New Thinking Aloud audience. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity. And, and again, congratulations on your great accomplishment. I'm very, very happy for you, Jeffrey. It, it, it does my heart good that you won this wonderful prize. I feel like you had a big part in it. You were part of the essay, and I, as I shared with you, a big part of the acceptance speech as well. Thank you. I was happy to, very happy to be there. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us. Thank you.